Morning, church. Um, So our passage today begins in Deuteronomy 12, uh, starting in 29, and goes through the end of chapter 13. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it, or take from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is your own, as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people." You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. 
It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be rebuilt. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. That concludes the passage. In 1758, the American colonies and the English parliament were at each other's throats. And Benjamin Franklin included a proverb or a poem in an almanac that he entitled, A Little Neglect May Breed Great Mischief. The poem does predate Benjamin Franklin, but here's his version of it. He's speaking of a horseshoe nail. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Indeed, it does seem that for the kingdom, all was lost due to the lack of a single horseshoe nail. It sounds like a bit of a fairy tale. Perhaps you prefer a more modern illustration. On January 31st, 2009, Google engineers accidentally added a single forward slash to the list of harmful websites that Google was aware of. Since Every website contains a forward slash. The entire internet was deemed dangerous and harmful to your computer. And for nearly an hour, the entire internet was blacklisted to all users across the globe. In millions and perhaps even billions of pages of code, a single out of place forward slash broke the internet. Whether the lack of a nail or the inclusion uh, of a symbol forward slash, in these illustrations, they quickly escalated to catastrophic consequences that may or may not have been predictable. God's word, however, tells us that unchecked temptations to sin have much more predictable consequences than what could happen than what could happen if we were missing a single hypothetical horseshoe nail. Throughout the Bible, we are told that temptation unchecked will ultimately bring forth death every time. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And the reason I say temptation unchecked is because sin usually does not go around yelling, here I am, I'm sin. It can so often come to us deceptively and seemingly innocent at first glance. But the deceptiveness of sin is no excuse because we know that our hearts are prone to wander. Wander towards things that are shiny and bright and attractive, things that bring us joy or fulfillment or purpose, things that we need or think we need or we just want it because someone said we couldn't have it. Or our hearts can be prone to wander away from things, wander from things that we dislike, that we don't find useful, or it's just plain difficult. 
we found something else that has captured our heart and we are now being drawn away from it. Last week, Matthew spoke to us about our heart's inclination to wander from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 12 and how God calls us to only worship him in the way he requires and makes possible because when we do not, we have reduced our worship to syncretism, which is just the mixing and combining of different religions and practices. And so as a bridge for us this morning, we will consider uh, the text that Hannah's just read for us. But before we do, let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, I am thankful for worship songs this morning that reminded us, that reminded me to put our trust in you. That you are eager to speak to us, more eager to speak to us than any of us are to speak to one another. And Lord, I thank you that we can lean on your word, which is a wealth of understanding that you make plain to us through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would do that and that you would guard us from all error. We ask for your help now, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Moses has reminded Israel in verse 29 that God is going before them, that he will cut off the nations before them. But then Moses warns them in verse 30, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? And up to this point, it seems clear that the Israelites would be ensnared if they went off to serving other gods. But then, as if Moses can hear them saying, yeah, yeah, Moses, we get it, serve Yahweh, not other gods, he continues, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For everything abominable, every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. And then Moses gives us just one example of one of their worst practices. And he says, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Not only are you not to worship other gods or even inquire about how these nations worship their gods. You shall not worship Yahweh in the way that these nations have worshiped their gods. That is the very definition of syncretism. And as if to summarize, Moses says to us in verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Inquiring how the Canaanites worship their gods is an attempt to worship Yahweh in the same way was to remove the proverbial missing horseshoe nail or the forward slash. And the consequences for Israel would be infinitely worse. They would very quickly be drawn away from Yahweh altogether. It was the very predictable end result of syncretism. And it is complete apostasy, abandonment, and renunciation of their God. You see, brothers and sisters, sin, the, the taking from or adding to what God has told us, is as old as the serpent in the Garden of Eden saying to Eve, did God actually say? And thereby he removed from what God said to them. And then again, the serpent said, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes shall be open and you will be like God. And thereby the serpent added to what God has said. 
So let us not be quick to excuse ourselves as if we are somehow immune to serving other gods and falling away from the Lord our God. Because adding to and taking from God's word is as old as original sin. And we will see also momentarily Moses has gone from addressing worship and what it should look like as a response to idolatry around us. But now Moses turns the eyes of Israel to see how they are to respond to the idolatry that is among them. This morning we will consider three different scenarios, three different stories that Moses gave to Israel. Hypothetical, but all too real. Situations that inevitably lead down the same road, complete apostasy, abandonment, and renunciation. And so I believe the command to us this morning is the same as it was to Israel. Ruthlessly reject every voice that would lead you away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer. Say it again. Ruthlessly reject every voice that would lead you away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer. And that then brings us to the first five verses of chapter 13 at our first point this morning. Spiritual authorities that reject exclusive devotion to our Redeemer. So Moses gives us this first scenario or example of how we could be led astray, and that is by entertaining voices of spiritual authorities that would lead us away from exclusive devotion to God's word. Because as we said before, sin is no small matter. We will see just how serious God takes sin and those who leads others away from him in a moment. But we, we see a so-called prophet or a dreamer of dreams arise from among their own ranks, among them. And he actually gives Israel a sign or a wonder that comes to pass. One author said, this is not smoke and mirrors. He didn't trick us. What he dreamt has come true. What they said uh, and what they did can only be described as supernatural. And after wooing us with a supernatural sign or dream, then look at the second part of verse 2. The prophet says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them dilemma right I mean we would want to assume that this prophet or dreamer of dreams is a man of God after all what he did or what he said has come to pass but the question we need to ask is is that how God has commanded us to obey him is the coming true of dreams or the display of supernatural signs, the signature of God, that this is indeed a spiritual authority who is to be obeyed and submitted to. No, emphatically. Verse three, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We have one ultimate authority by which we measure any and all spiritual authorities and voices. Look at verse four and look carefully because he essentially repeats it four times. You shall walk after the Lord, your God and fear him and 
keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Moses has not left any room for us to wonder about where our spiritual authority comes from or who our spiritual authority is. We are to order our lives under and obey the word of God. Walk after the Lord your God. Fear him. Keep his commandments. Obey his voice. Serve him. Hold fast to him. Any voice that has our ear, whether an author of books or podcasts, a spiritual leader, a healer, deliverer, prophet, or worship leader, whether it's a prophetic word or whether it's a new worship song, we measure whether they are pleasing to God by discerning whether they align with God's word. You see, just because a famous musician wrote a song once that really got you emotional doesn't mean we submit to every product from them here and forevermore. Just because a friend sent you a helpful quote from a new book about self-forgiveness does not mean the author's work should be accepted as authoritative. Just because a pastor or a parent had great advice or what we determined to be good advice based on how it made us feel doesn't mean that we accept it as the authority of God in our lives. Friend, this week will be inundated with book recommendations, so-called worship songs on the radio, self-help quotes or memes on Facebook, sermon excerpts plastered all over social media by spiritual authorities that want to speak into our lives. And if what they proclaim does not align with the word of God, then you and I are to reject them and give them no opportunity and lend them no ear in our lives. When any truth or song, or quote, is not grounded in biblical truth to begin with, and yet claims to be authoritative, it will soon show itself to be unable to bring about the lasting change God's word has promised that it can deliver. We cannot trust our hearts to determine whether the spiritual authorities around us are authoritative. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Next to profitable, we can say authoritative. Scripture breathed out by God and is authoritative for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness. This is how we discern truth. And it is infinitely more reliable than our hearts because it is the very infallible word of God. The word informs us authoritatively how we are to respond and to live by rejecting every voice that would lead us astray from exclusive exclusive devotion to the word of God. Verse four again, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And anything that fails that test is to be rejected and dealt with ruthlessly in our lives because the smallest temptation that draws us away from exclusive devotion to the word of God in our midst, not ruthlessly rejected, will soon lead us away from God to complete rejection of him, guaranteed. But that is not the only way that the scripture is telling us that we need to deal with voices that would lead us away from God. Now we get to verse 5, where I'm sure you 
all have been waiting eagerly for me to talk about what we are to do to those who draw us away from exclusive devotion to God. Look at verse 5 with me. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. God says through Moses, because I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, because I have redeemed you out of the house of slavery, you are commanded to walk in all my ways that I've commanded you. And the one who has tempted you to sin, the one who has lured you away from exclusive devotion to the word of God, you are now commanded, you shall put him to death. Sin is ruthlessly dealt with by God. So what would this look like for us to walk in obedience to that today? And here we have to do a bit of critical thinking to understand what is being communicated to us, the context thereof, and the application for us today. First, we consider the fact that Moses is speaking to the nation state of Israel. That is, those who are ethnic Jews under the old covenant. We, however, under the new covenant. Israel was marked by their ethnicity and their lineage. We are marked spiritually by faith in Christ as the bride of Christ. Acts 1.8 reminds us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you are, the Christian, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. John Piper said it this way. The new covenant is different from the old We do not execute false teachers or their apostates. We do not purge the evil from our midst by throwing stones. The closest thing we do, something just as serious, is church discipline and excommunication. So although the intention, although the intention of the scripture has stayed the same because God hasn't changed, the following statement was true for Israel and it remains true for us. We are to ruthlessly reject every voice that would lead us away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer. The major change is that we engage with this command differently because we are under a new covenant. The application of the scripture will look different. And this is the truth, as was said earlier, not because Matthew or I or some scholars have decided that it is, because, but because Christ himself told us that he fulfilled the old covenant. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The old covenant was designed to show the people of God that they were hopelessly lost without a savior. They could not keep God's law. It pointed them as it does for us to the fact that we need someone to keep the law for us and then apply the blessings of keeping that law to us. And that someone is Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our punishment we get his righteousness. 
So there's continuity because of God's purposes, and there's discontinuity because God has furthered our understanding and application of the old covenant through Jesus Christ who fulfilled it. And so we can continue to apply and teach the law and the old covenant, even though we ourselves are no longer covenantally bound to it. Rather, we continue to be bound by and apply the law as it has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jason Meyer says it this way. Christians are under the binding authority of the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. The law of Christ is the demand of God that is binding on Christians since the coming of Christ. The law of Christ includes the demands and teachings of Christ and his apostles. Parts of the law of Moses carry over, but only because they now are part of the law of Christ. Love for neighbor is the primary lens through which the Christian views the law of Moses. And the most direct guide for loving one another is the law of Christ, not the law of Moses, because the new standard for love is Christ's cross. So we can turn to pages, to scriptures such as 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 to 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the word and wander off into myths. So, may we, when we are confronted by spiritual authority that tries to lead us away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer, respond by ruthlessly rejecting those voices keeping watch over our souls by being careful to obey all God has commanded us while at the same time loving others through acts like teaching, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting those wayward voices from the word of God. Amen. That brings us to the second point. Point number two, close personal relationships that reject exclusive devotion to God. Moses has gone from last week's text where he spoke to us about how to respond to idolatry around us, the Canaanites. He tightened the circle to spiritual leaders in our midst, among us, and he tightens that now for us even more to close personal relationships. In the first scenario, Moses says that a spiritual authority has tried to lead us astray and he is to be put to death. Here in the second scenario, Moses has gone to great lengths to paint a significantly more vivid picture. Look with me at verse 6. If your brother, son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods. I mean, Moses isn't talking about some distant relative here. The wife you embrace, the friend who is as your own soul, could not be closer or more loved. And then Moses takes the vivid picture one step further. If these very beloved and close people entice you secretly, meaning in the comfort of your own home, and you may be the only person that knows of their secret enticing. 
trying to entice you away from exclusive to the to uh, exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer. Verse 8 says, You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. What shall we do? Verse 9, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people, you shall stone him to death with stones. Now again, As a people marked by our spiritual union with Christ under a new covenant, we remember that there's continuity because of God's purposes. He is the same. But there's also discontinuity because God has furthered our understanding and application of the old covenant through Jesus who has fulfilled it. I do think an opportunity would be missed, however, if we did not quickly consider those of us that would think The God of the Old Testament just seems bloodthirsty and vindictive. Hear what Christopher Wright says. If we no longer feel comfortable with the cursing Psalms, for example, it is not because of our greater Christian sensitivity, but because of our appalling moral apathy. We no longer feel the passion of the psalmist that God should deal with evil and evildoers and vindicate God's own moral order in the world. We respond to idolatrous, blasphemous evil, not with a curse, but with a shrug, and then have the gall to claim morally higher ground than ancient Israel. Similarly, if we can no longer identify with the scale of priorities and values that undergird Deuteronomy 13, it is manifestly not because we have acquired a greater appreciation of the value of human life, but because we have lost any sense of the awful majesty of God's reality. Even though our application of this text looks different because of our being under a new covenant, we should still respond with the same disgust and aversion and loathing to every sin and every voice that would lead us away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer. Whether your brother invites you to a party where you know things are going down that will not be glorifying to God. Whether your children give in to common peer pressures and then ask for your approval. Whether the friend who is as your own soul or the person you laid next to in bed last night gossips and slanders and tries to draw you into doing the same, we must ruthlessly Reject those voices. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. And we are reminded of why in the second part of verse 10. Because... The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We have been bought at a price. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Because of Christ's obedience, because of his 
sinless life because he kept the law that we could not keep because he died our death in our place and was raised again victorious over the grave and broke the power of sin for us. And because he then applied all the blessings of perfect obedience to us, we can now by his resurrection power, trust him and obey him to the glory of God. Even when the very person who has tempted us to draw attempted to draw us away from God is as close as the wife you embrace or the close friend who is as your own soul. And then verse 11 reminds us that when we reject every voice that would lead us away from exclusive devotion, it has corporate implications, corporate benefits. Verse 11 And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. I read some time ago uh, where an author said that if we desire to have stronger, healthier churches, the fastest way to make that happen is to be a stronger, healthier member of that church and your church will immediately be stronger and healthier and benefit from it instantly. By being careful to do everything that God commands us, by rejecting every voice that would lead us from exclusive devotion to him, there will be corporate warning and corporate blessing. And that brings us to the final point. Point three. Responding to corporate rejection of exclusive devotion to God. If points one and two were warning us to ruthlessly reject every voice that would lead us away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer, then the third point tells us what to do when people have not been ruthless with every temptation to sin. And you find that corporate falling away from exclusive devotion to God has come to pass. The promises of corporate blessing, when we are careful to do all that God commands us, have fallen away. Moses just spoke to us about that from verse 11, and now there is corporate obedience in action. In this portion of this morning's scripture, we see Moses' longest and most in-depth description of punishment in this chapter, and it is reserved for corporate falling away from exclusive devotion to the word of God. He commands them, once you have heard of such sin and confirmed that it to be true and accurate, verse 15 you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword, you shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hands. Eugene Merrill says, the seriousness of the punishment fits the seriousness of the crime. They have not only inquired about other gods, they have failed to keep what Moses commanded them in the first two scenarios. They have not ruthlessly rejected every voice that would lead them away from exclusive devotion to the word of God. And now the lingering 
persisting voices of spiritual authorities, of brothers or sons or daughters, the wife that you embrace or the friend that is as your own soul has caused apostasy and outright rejection of God. Rejection of the same God who promised back in Deuteronomy 12, 29, that he will cut off before them the nations whom they go in to dispossess. Or rejection of the same God who brought them out of slavery and the house of Egypt in verses 5 and 10. And so God commanded them to treat that city exactly how he commanded them to treat every other Canaanite city upon entering the promised land because they had essentially defected by worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. Joshua 8.28 says, So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. That city was to be treated as one of the Canaanite cities. The seriousness of the punishment did indeed fit the seriousness of the crime. So what does this look like for us under the new covenant, the law of Christ? Well, it could look like 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 11. Paul writing to the Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul had written them a previous time. We don't have that letter anymore. Uh, but now he writes to the Corinthians not to associate with sexually immoral people, and they misunderstood him. So he says to them, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Rather, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And Matthew has reminded us this morning that that term brother is not used lightly. When Paul says not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, our minds should immediately go to the corporate setting of the church. Bearing the name of brother is intended to point us to fellow church members numbered among us. And if he is guilty, not even to eat with such a one. And not even to eat with such a one is referring us to communion. One of the many blessings of communion is that it is a visible expression of our unity, an affirmation of our spiritual condition. And so Paul commands the removing of this affirmation by way of excommunication, which is the corporate dealing with sin. God is today as committed to his holiness and his glory as he was nearly 3,500 years ago in Deuteronomy 13. And we know this to be true because he knew that we could not keep his commands and instead he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. As a great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every respect just as we are. And then scripture says, yet without sin. 
and he became for us a perfect sacrifice in our place so that we would not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, apart from the work of Christ on the cross to appease God's wrath against us, we would have had to keep the Mosaic law to gain right standing with God, and that is impossible. I said earlier that while Israel was marked by their ethnicity, we were marked We are marked spiritually, and so we, by the power of the Spirit alone, can trust him to lead us and empower us and equip us and embolden us so that we may guard our souls and that by the power of the Spirit, we may ruthlessly reject every voice that would lead us away from exclusive devotion to the word of our Redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if everything that you've heard this morning sounds difficult, and maybe you just don't even know where to start, please know that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He is with us, and he wants to help us to be able to discern his voice from among all the voices that fight for our attention and devotion. And we can go to him in prayer and ask for his help. And he is eager to help us. Or maybe you already, even as you listen this morning, have become aware of voices in your life that you have allowed to lead you away. To lead you away from exclusive devotion to God. Or maybe you've even realized that you have been a voice leading others away from exclusive devotion to God. If that's the case, then please know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ this morning. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 9 reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is only true and our only hope because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and all he did on the cross to conquer sin and death. He came to accomplish all of this for us because he knew that we are unable. We are unable to be careful to do all that he has commanded us apart from his saving work on the cross on our behalf. So let us hope in him because he is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are unchanging. We can know that even when we come to difficult texts that you are still speaking, that you have not changed, and that there is application and wisdom and protection for us in your word. Thank you for the reminder that this morning's text has been to me and to us. Lord, that we are to ruthlessly reject those voices that want to lead us astray. And Lord, that you, through your word, give us discernment about how to deal with those voices all around us. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us strength to endure, and that you would give us the resolve we need in order to follow your word and to be able to worship you exactly the way that you require of us. We pray that in your name alone. Amen.